morning. Welcome to our assembly. And before we begin, we want to invite you back at 5 o'clock. Also, Wednesday night, we have Bible class at 7.30. Our website is open 24 hours a day, lhmacallen.org. Thank you for coming this morning. Now, this opening slide doesn't mean I don't know what I'm going to do. I want to begin this morning by talking to you for a few minutes about the value of questions. Good questions can have great value for good thinking and from good thinking to good living. A question is not just one of many varieties of communication devices and in the course of writing an essay or engaging in conversation, you just throw in a question because you haven't used one in two or three paragraphs. That's not the function. Good questions are designed to cause us to think and to think and then respond, to understand and then to act upon what we need to understand. And I suppose you have noticed that all through the New Testament, in the teaching of Jesus and His apostles, there are a number of questions. Not just for the original listeners and readers, but for us, to cause us to think, to bring into our minds Issues and warnings and points of exclamation and self-examination and encouragement. And so this morning, and again at 5 p.m. when you come back, we're going to review ten questions taken from the New Testament which hold rich spiritual value for each one of us. Now, I want you to listen very carefully. I want to underscore this. These are not my questions. These are not questions I wrote. These questions are not original with me. The Holy Spirit gave these questions and they are written in the New Testament for us. Now, what are you thinking? Already, you may think you know what some of these questions are. But in these two sermons today, we're not going to deal with some of the common expected inquiries. Have you been baptized? Do you attend services faithfully? Can you tell someone how to be saved? Now, these are good questions. And on other occasions, we have responded to these questions, and we will do so in the future. But what I've lined up for, day, I, for today, I'm going to call the other questions. Five this morning, and five others when we come back at five. Every one of these from the New Testament. Turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 
in Matthew chapter 9. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home, and he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. The question we begin with, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Why do you think evil in your hearts? In this context, it wasn't that Jesus' opponents were <clears throat> just a little off on something, or that they had a mistaken view that could be quickly corrected. There was evil intention, and Jesus knew it because he could read hearts. There was evil intention to reject the truth about Jesus, and as a part of that rejection, accuse him of blaspheming. So the question is valid for all of us as to the content of our hearts and minds. <clears throat> Though we may not have a heart that would produce any accusation of Jesus blaspheming, the question is valid. An old preacher who made the circuit in rural churches 100 years ago would take a bar of soap with him into the pulpit and a scrub brush. And he would briefly speak of hygiene, the necessity of being clean. And then he would put those props aside and he would hold up his Bible and he would say to the people, you must use God's Word to clean up. And then he said, you do that by starting inside with your heart. Use God's Word to scrub and remove the evil from inside, from the heart. Clean up those evil thoughts so that the pure Word of God can fill you and make you righteous through the blood of Christ. But look again at the question. Why do you think evil in your hearts? Now, as that would apply to us, if you believe God is, if you know who Jesus is and what He did, if you are aware of the consequences of sin and the great rewards of righteousness, why do you think evil in your hearts? How did the evil get in there? Why did you let it stay there? 
And will you now use the soap and the brush of God's Word to expel and clean that evil from your mind so that you can put truth and love in its place? That question was not only for the scribes in Matthew 9, but it was written and transmitted to us for our good today. But I want to be more specific before I leave it. May I clarify? Evil in your hearts isn't just about dirty stories, lewd thoughts, lascivious dreams. If you want to lie and you begin to make up that lie, evil thought, if you plan revenge and you do not repent and you begin to carry out that plan of revenge, evil thought, if you hate someone and you actively seek their downfall, if you just think that you want them to fall, evil thought, if you entertain gossip, malice, envy, jealousy, if you act in any way or think in any way contrary to what Prentice read in 1 Corinthians 13 about love, all evil thoughts go in those categories. How did those evil thoughts get in your mind? And will you take the scrub brush and the soap of God's Word and get them out so that love and truth and purity can find a home within you. You see how good questions can be for us. Why do you think evil in your hearts? Turn a few pages, please, and find Matthew 15. Matthew chapter 15. You'll just need to turn a few pages, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 to introduce question number 2. 1 through 9 in Matthew 15. The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father, so for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? That's question number two. These Jewish men, the Pharisees and scribes, had access to the law of the Old Testament. They knew what it said. They read it 
They studied it. Some of them could quote lengthy passages from the Old Testament, God's law given through Moses for the Jewish people before Christ. But separate from the Old Testament, these men Jesus spoke to had written their own traditions, not given by God. Religious rules and regulations they came up with. And eventually, these traditions became more important to them than God's actual word. And when someone violated one of the laws they wrote, they were quick and undisciplined and bold to charge the violator with sin. Now, I should say these traditions were not just expedients, methods, or cultural ways. These were laws they wrote, not God. And they imposed or bound these laws on others as necessary to please God. How arrogant and presumptuous they were. What they wrote eventually became more important to them than the Word of God. But further, Jesus says here, they actually wrote laws and ways technically to get around doing what God said they ought to do. So mother and father need help. But these men would say, well, we have a law against that. What? Yes, we've written our own law so that we cannot obey God's law that says honor your father and your mother. That's how bad it was. So Jesus said, why? Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Can you imagine these men actually wrote down ways of getting around obeying God? They came up with schemes and arguments and traditions to avoid doing what God said they ought to do. I don't want to have any part of that kind of thing, do you? Would you want to have a meeting this afternoon? A bunch of us get together and we brainstorm and we discuss how we can get around doing what God says? I hope nobody would show up for that. We ain't doing it. God's Word that we have is perfectly sufficient without any changes or additions that we might conceive. If tempted to invent our own traditions to counter God's Word, the question should ring loud in our memory. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? I tell you, Isaiah was right. Many years before these men came along and wrote their laws, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as their doctrines the commandments or precepts of men. And this leads me to question number three for this morning. Have you never read in the Scriptures? That's rather abrupt, isn't it? This was part of a parable Jesus gave 
And it was about God sending His Son, and yet the Son was rejected. And as Jesus concludes the parable, He punctuates how He wants them to be convicted. Have you never read in the Scriptures? See, the Old Testament Scriptures told the people God would send His Son. And those Old Testament passages had warned about rejecting the Son. Jesus quoted here from Psalms, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's a marvelous thing in our eyes. Now for us, the question can be worded in this fashion without doing any injustice to the context. Are we reading Scripture? Or have you never read what the Bible says that you ought to be doing? What some people do is, when they have a specific question, or they have an argument put before them, or an issue or a debate, they will take the Bible off the shelf and dust it off. Might need to wear a mask for that. And they'll keep the Bible open long enough to look something up to respond to the question they've had. And then they close it, (coughs) put it back on the shelf. The result of that is you have a knowledge of several disconnected facts. You have a mind full of proof texts or responses. And some of you know exactly what I'm going to say next about how to avoid that spotty knowledge. Daily Bible reading from front to back. With such consistency, you know the book. You don't just know part of the book here and part of the book there and part of it over here. You know the book. The pieces fit together. And it says here in Matthew 21, 42, it's a marvelous thing in our eyes. Have you never read the scriptures? Many of the critics of the Bible have never read the Bible. The way you know that is, the critic of the Bible will say, well, the Bible says this, and that's not right. And you begin to inquire, where does the Bible say that? Well, I know the Bible says it. Can you give me the passage where the Bible says that? And when you get to that passage, what's the context of that all about? You hear crickets, you see. Many of the critics of the Bible haven't read the Bible. They say the Bible contains many contradictions. Stop them right there and say, name one. Well, I know there are contradictions in the Bible. Name one. And let's go over and look at that in the context. Have you never read the Scripture? God gave His Word with the intention that we read it, study it, follow it, and know it. And Jesus died so that we can. On September the 16th, coming up here, Sunday morning... 16th of September, I'm going to preach on the topic, What kind of Bible do you have? 
it's going to concern translations and study Bibles and the kinds of Bibles we use. And then I'll ask again, have you never read Scripture? Are you using the Bible that you have? Turn to Mark 4. Mark chapter 4. I'm going to be at verse 35 through 41 in Mark chapter 4. That's going to be the last paragraph in the book of Mark. Chapter 5. 4. Chapter 4. Told you they were not my questions. I can't even find them. Mark 4, 35 to 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher... Do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Two things emerge together from that narrative, just right on the surface. Jesus cares. There is every reason to believe that he cares. And our belief in His care is faith. It can be stated from the imagery of this narrative and backed up by specific teaching that there is no promise to Christ's followers that there will be no storms. Along the path of duty, under circumstances we cannot perfectly explain, at various times in life, we are tossed about and we are shaken by various kinds of adversity. And sometimes we think it will not go away. The immediate natural response is fear. And in that fear we feel weak and frail and unstable. Then we get hold of spiritual maturity. And we remember two things that Jesus cares and that our belief in Him is what brought us to Him and what keeps us safe in the storms. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? You know, all around us, the name of Christ is called. It is mentioned and used and claimed, often without any intention to do what He says we ought to do. 
It would be interesting and perhaps beneficial for the person who uses the name of Christ to simply ask, what did Christ say I need to do? If I'm going to call His name, say He's my Savior, view myself as His follower, if I'm going to do all that, I need to see what He wants me to do. And you might hear in reply some generic responses. Love one another and do good and be kind and honest. What if you inquired further? What did Jesus say it means to love one another? In what specific ways are we to be good and kind and honest? How are we going to find out the specifics of all those great things we believe Jesus said we ought to do? Well, what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to read what he said with intention to do what he said. See, the widespread problem today is people want to call his name and claim him as their savior and speak well of him and pray through him when they're in trouble, but without daily obedience to what he said. It is profession without practice, it's words without action, it's claim without commitment, it is pretending to honor Him, but without obedience to His commandments. Why? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Do you see how valuable questions can be? Not mine, the Lord's. In our search for meaning, in our efforts to draw near to God and be better disciples of Christ and serve one another better, as I read Scripture, I need to be open to rebuke, and you need to be open to rebuke. Sometimes that rebuke comes in the form of a striking inquiry. <clears throat> Why? Do you call me Lord? And you don't do what I say. We need to strive to build up a faith that is active, that not only calls Jesus Lord, but lives under His authority every day. Well, I've got one more question, and this last one is mine. Will you come back at 5 o'clock and hear the other five questions? We hope you will. And we hope you'll resolve at this moment to take everything we've studied and make the truth of God part of your life while we stand together to sing.